0: This episode of 3AM, What's Keeping You Up at Night? We talk with Jane Rosenzweig, who for over a decade served as the global diversity leader at the multinational corporation W.L. Gore. She now serves as an independent DEI consultant. Why did Tanya suggest Jane? Well, they've worked together. She trusts Jane's intentions and initiatives to provide opportunities for a fulfilling human experience in the workplace and Jane is white. That's right. In a worldwide corporate ecosystem where the executive level position concentrating on and used to show an organization's commitment to diversity, a position usually held, saved, created for a person of color was in fact for over a decade held by a white woman as the corporation's global diversity leader. Really? I said to Tanya. How about all that? We have to get beyond this willful ignorance of whites regarding systemic racism. And then I met Jane Rosenzweig. She has so much to say. Let's jump in. Jane, it is so great to have you here on 3 a.m. What's Keeping You Up at Night in this particular moment of time during this particular series. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, You're welcome, Deb. Thank you. It's going to be a great conversation um, just so that everyone kind of, we can see this thread through everything. And I think Tanya is going to be the thread but um, as Tanya and I started talking about this series of helping me understand as a white person just understanding privilege uh, and then understanding racism and, and systemic racism and the, the nature of the social construct of race uh, and then moving to anti-racism or you know kind of whatever that term is supposed to supposed to be as we continue to flesh it out that you were one of those people, uh, that I needed to at least connect with. I think then we connected and it was very clear that having you a part of this conversation was important. And I, well, there was also the genius behind it. Obviously, that's Tanya as well, Tanya. right? And um, she said, look, Jane is, has been in the work of diversity, inclusion, experience, et cetera, For quite a while in her career and led it for 15 years at a major corporation, she should be in on the conversation. And she said, and parenthetically, but perhaps importantly, she's white. And that would perhaps serve as a bridge or a link for folks who may be new to these kinds of discussions and understand that it really is all of us together understanding one another and the humanness of each other as we try to move forward. So did I get the backdrop correct on that, Jane? Absolutely. Yes. Good, good. It's good to have um, Tanya Odom
1: in common. That's for sure.
0: Too. Isn't it? Yes. It's a it's a marvelous bridge for, for both of us. Um, so let me just ask how you are doing. Just as a human, how are you doing? Oh, thank you. I'm doing well today. Um, doing well, right? It's always in for me in context. Thank you for posing it that way. It's it is one of those things that we have made the conscious choice to continue the podcast and mm. Relationary Marketing has done just such a marvelous job of keeping us moving forward and intact. Mm. And, and so although you are miles away from me, um, it, it, it feels at least through the recording and, and through our conversation that we could be across the table or at least across the room, right? With COVID, mm-hmm. we probably couldn't be beside oh, each other, right? right? So um, our you know, hats off to Relationary for first of all making us sound wonderful, but like helping us keep the podcast going. But hey, why don't we go ahead and, and speak a little bit about what your current new is? Sure. Because then I think that almost feeds beautifully into what we want to talk about today, which is kind of the corporate culture. And how through your journey, uh, just things that you have done, goals you've had, um, and then I think the larger context is this notion of patience and long haul. And I think you'll be able to talk about that quite clearly. I think sometimes, particularly in the in the environment of today and the emotions of today, there is this particularly for whites. And of course, I don't speak across the board, although we do ask that of our friends of color to speak in a monolithic right. voice, right? Mm, um, yeah. I do think there can be some fatigue for sure. And I think that's what privilege also allows for that. So I do want to speak a little bit about thinking um, about patience and long haul and you know, incremental as well as huge revolutionary changes. And I, that's why I think You're perfect for this because of the longevity of your work, but um, perhaps also giving those of us who are kind of new to this um, and are trying really hard to make sure that we do make a difference, you know, maybe just some tips and pointers um, as we go. So I think that will work as a framework for us. So let's talk about your new there, Miss Rosenzweig, huh?
1: Thank you. Yes. Uh, New chapters. Well, patience. And I'm I'm so glad for framing in general, Deb, and yours in particular, because um I can get pretty tired myself and I can also let that spiral into what's it all been about when I think about 15 years at the company that I joined. So when I joined, it was to be the first global leader for diversity and inclusion. And it was a dream job, and it still is, even though I've just left. So I have some emotion about it. It's still new. So you'll hear mm-hmm. that probably. But the word patience was really significant because the CEO at the time when I joined was a new CEO. The company, I won't, I can share more about it, but it's a privately held company. And she was a new CEO who had grown up there, a woman CEO, by the way, not insignificant mm-hmm. given the context of this conversation. But what she guided me to understand was that the way she saw this, meaning diversity and the changes we were embarking on, she cautioned me to be patient, which I thought was interesting because most of what I knew of CEOs prior to that, indirectly, I did not interact with CEOs prior, um, was that it's all about hurry up, tell me your 90-day plan and what are the results going to be. And her frame was we want to do this right, meaning we want to figure out how come our great, great culture seems to have some limits for those who are not in the majority? So patience was literally part of our philosophy. Mm. Um, and I think it's still necessary now, 15 years later, you know, beyond Gore, any of us who want to do more. I don't think there's a way to embark on this kind of social change, justice work, whatever you want to call it. Um, Without knowing, there's urgency, but there's also just patience required.
0: Mm. So, what do you think is the core of resistance?
1: Resistance to change in the yeah. space around
0: racism. Okay. Yes, that causes. I mean, causes the need for patience. Mm, gotcha.
1: Well, so my own, I'll, I'll talk about my own insight several years ago, so about nine years in relative to to race and a project, actually. It wasn't the first project Tanya uh, Odom and I had worked on together, but it was a really significant one, I think, for her too, but certainly for me. Um, I went to our CEO, Terry Kelly, at that point. I had been there nine years. We had done a lot of great work. And by the way, not just she and I, thousands of Mm -hmm. associates across Gore at that point had signed up and said, yes, we want to work on this. And it's a very collaborative, high involvement culture. So we leveraged that a lot. But at some point I was talking to a member of our African-American business network, a black man. And he and I just had a moment where we, I don't know what to call that, like a shared frustration moment where it was like, it's just not helping everything we were doing. And I'm, I'm speaking in absolutes. It's not Accurate that there were some improvements, but when it came to race, is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. I had a moment where I said, We need to take it a step deeper, and -hmm. it caused me to reflect on my own life, and particularly as a diversity practitioner who is white like, what am I doing to contribute to this problem not getting solved? And one of the big insights, and why coming back to your question about the resistance. I'm not sure if it's resistance or just lack of information and knowledge. And it's infuriating for Black people I know, including that person. His name is Aubrey. I think it's resistance because we are socialized as white people in America to not really understand the depths of racism, of -hmm. the systemic history. Like I oversimplify it and say, you know, almost like I think I learned in good public schools in New York state that, uh, you know, slavery was bad. Lincoln solved that. Like, let's move on. And it just wasn't true. And even when I later in life learned there was more to it, I don't think I, even as a practitioner in diversity, understood the depths of the oppression and systemic exclusion, and that it wasn't just individuals doing bad things or even unintentionally bad things. It was all by design and, that really led me to say, okay, if I feel this as a diversity practitioner, my lack of knowledge, then wow, what what do others feel? And sure enough, there is a lot of um, information gap to, to close in, in our community. So let me pause and see what that hit for you, Deb. Oh,
0: yeah. gosh. Well, you know, I've written so many notes down. I think the first time it's still, you know, I'm still in that vocabulary kind of, mm. Clarification. So, just a couple of things, and then there was there was a phrase I, I had not heard before. So, I want to dig a little bit deeper into okay. that. So, the so it's the notion of a diversity practitioner. So, could we just kind of unpack what what that means? Affirmative
1: action when that started in organizations. So, I, I'll show my lack of precision on dates. So, I won't bother. But affirmative action, equal employment opportunity, the the government mm-hmm. required mandates for addressing inequities in companies, certainly gender later race all groups protected groups is a phrase that's used and um, these are the groups that have been identified by the government as in need of some affirmative action that's my interpretation so that's really the the origin What happened more towards the you know there's a shift that's often called from compliance to you know and there's a whole continuum of effort but I think in the 90s or so, diversity became a reframe for affirmative action and some of the government mandates and the compliance-driven activity that corporations were doing um, was broadened to be more about diversity was a phrase that was meant to convey that it's much more than just counting up people and how many of each identity group you have and much more about, hmm, how about the their experience at work? So diversity is about ensuring that people from all different backgrounds um, have a fair shot at having a good experience, first of all, for joining a company, for having a good experience in whatever way they define it, Um, Mm. but certainly career development. And the acknowledgement that just because the doors were open didn't mean that the path to the top, if that's your goal, um, was possible for, for underrepresented groups often the phrase. So diversity practitioners, coming back to your question, are people in roles inside companies, some like me, who are head of diversity, chief diversity officer, and then probably in the last 15 years, 10, that evolved to inclusion. Um, Belonging has become a frame Mm. for a lot of this work. And certainly equity was always there. But it's ironic that I think it's only in the past more recently past maybe 5 years that corporations have chosen to get the equity word into the frame and i love that personally i think that's great because that speaks to the systemic side
0: i'm just trying to put some descriptives around it so is advocate one of those things is watchdog one of those things is right at visionary is that are, are those kinds of descriptors in terms of the role that was played? Maybe. Uh, I mm. think I
1: should say. I'm sure it's different
0: for each person.
1: And herein lies one of the challenges mm. that mm-hmm. so many of us in this work, inside, I'm going to probably keep referring back to corporate mm-hmm. no, yeah, that's for fine. me. Um, yeah. Because really, I used to, before George Floyd's murder, I used to describe myself as doing social justice undercover in a company, but, okay, but, um, not in a bad way, just that, like, in my experience, there wasn't a lot of interest in doing social justice work, if you call it that. But really, that is, for me, what diversity efforts were, were about, about ensuring equity, ensuring fairness, ensuring that a person's identity Um, and really identity that are not part of the majority group in whatever context. So um, if you're not a white man in corporate America, very often that was seen as every other group needs some support to ensure that there's fair treatment. That started to become distasteful. I think, Deb, the sort of linkage back to the government mandated and the true social justice. So that's why diversity as a field is often skewered as being, um, Hollow, just about marketing the proverbial it's window
0: dressing, right? Yep. Check yeah. the box,
1: you know, yeah. just do Check. enough. But yeah, um, like who's
0: it like who's in mm-hmm. the photo, right? Exactly. Like, okay, we we need a brochure. So who's in the photo? Right? It's almost I mean, it's akin to the pullet Bureau, right? Like who's still yep. in power because you're with yep. the chairman, right? Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So and I think that that's the hollowness to it, right? It's you know, you have to wonder if the alternative, a- the uh, affirmative action, was uncomfortable, and so that's why it moved to diversity. I mean, I think mm-hmm. for your reasons as well, but it's a, it's softer. I agree. Um, so that's why I wonder internally, speaking about corporations, and these mm-hmm. can be small businesses to you know sure. huge, huge More multinationals, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's that. So what I'm understanding is in you, in your work and in that field, right? So to, to so to d- legitimize it as a field, not a field. Feel good kind of position that it it was, in fact, to make sure that the metrics, the opportunities, um, the connections, the networking, the professional development, and all allowed for what to bust through the ceiling or to provide, you know, assured ascension based on a bit of what someone looked like as well as you know, their their mm-hmm. performance level and and their gifts that they brought to those particular positions. Can you help me with that? I'm not really sure there was a question yeah. in there. No, it's
1: okay. I'll still answer, Deb. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> That's okay. My own work in becoming a diversity practitioner um, happened for me later. But I do feel like for me, I was always wired this way to sort of mm. want to care about fairness and justice. And So when I first was working in my early 20s, I, I raised my hand to become an Equal Employment Opportunity Investigator. This was in the federal government, so it was mandated. But to understand that when complaints happen, how do we look into them? How did the organization make sure that they took it seriously, investigated it, had a result and a finding? So some of what it centered on was the complaint level that's when it's you've moved beyond, let's try to work this out together. But it did center on the cases that I was aware of, things that were just really like frustration level. You know, I've tried, I've tried, I've talked a black woman talking to her white manager and attempting to get ahead and get a promotion and not getting it eventually led to a complaint. And the complaint hmm. then became the thing. But I got pretty obsessed with, Why couldn't they figure that out before? You know, weren't they talking about it? And in fact, they were. But the breakdown, so maybe this is my attempt to connect to your resistance question, is simply, it's hard to look at as a white person, I think, when a person of color generally, and in this case, a black person is saying, no, I don't feel you're treating me fairly. And and it is because of my race. And I wondered now, that was in the early 90s. If I wouldn't have had more, I definitely would have had a lot more knowledge personally, but even in the collective awareness, knowledge of things like white fragility or what does it mean to have white privilege? And all of these things were not really known to me in those days. So I think resistance early on became almost disbelief that this kind of, you know, experience was possible by quote unquote good white people who were in their own minds absolutely not prejudiced working against discrimination so it defies our um, our own belief about ourselves that we're good to have to deal with the fact that
0: you know not so much certainly there is just outright resistance mm-hmm. um, in fact you know for I've certainly have heard conversations where why why well, if there is privilege why would I give it up mm-hmm. which I think also talks to the resistance of affirmative action and and the that you see it the that you see the pie as a, as a single space. Yes. yes. That if I cram more people into that, well, certainly my slice will get smaller. Versus a tide where it can all rise, and that we can all we can all benefit. And I do believe that the um, social construct has caused us to think that way. Uh, I also think that the demonization of color has also made mm-hmm. it if if a person of color um, is either promoted or promoted above or you know what I'm saying? That that's, yeah. something's, something's wrong with that or something's wrong with you. There's this almost this foot race to the finish line where whites start, you know, at least half a length, if not more, or a full lap ahead, uh, many would contend, um, in a two-lap race, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so, so thinking about what that looks like for those internally trying to have some measure of, of equity. Uh, Some measure of inclusion, some measure of belonging, to use those words that you've offered for us um, to in some attempt to dismantle Mm -hmm. right the exclusion. Um, Gosh, this just seems like a huge job. And gosh, what's the what's the I mean, how do you go about getting buy in, particularly since the currency, which is. You know, is is still the same. I think, although I think people are trying to to change it, but that the currency is is still the same, and that hopefully it changes with Mr. Mm-hmm. Floyd's murder and the rising of consciousness. But we're still back to like, well, what it, what do the pictures in the brochure look like? So, yeah, what are those conversations like? I mean, so you you know, this is your job, and mm-hmm. um, and and the reason I'm asking these questions is is partially because it is just fascinating to hear about it, but it. But it is to give a, a bit of an indication to people who may be getting into this work, um or or who are in it, or are really seeking um, ways and avenues to change a trajectory, perhaps for their business or in their corporation. Just what does that look like? I mean, I guess a, a more pointed question is, as opposed to having, you know, somebody come in to talk about white fragility or talk about, um, diversity or, you know, the kumbaya, it's a small world after all kind of thing. Um, how does it work to get the attention of, of leadership and then move kind of punditry to, to process and, and make change? Oh, good one. Punditry to process. That's good.
1: (laughs) Permission to steal. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) With attribution. Uh, I'll answer it through my own experience, I think. So how do you influence others to care about this has been my challenge to myself and, and I think all of us who are trying to shift behavior. So really the approach that most people, I believe, who do this work take is something related to change management inside a company. But it isn't change management in the sense of, oh, we're going to implement a new system and Someone's job's going to change. That'll be a little tough, but they'll get through it. We'll say good job and we'll reinforce the behavior. The change management that I practice, and I I know most others who have a shot at having lasting impact, is acknowledging that the shifts, the changes we're talking about are shifts in in mindset, paradigm shifts. Somebody once said to me, so your actual job is to change a whole paradigm, a social construct. And wow. i like, yeah, kind of. You know, I'll give it a <laughs> shot. Um, so then bring it down to the system I was in. One of the ways um, I did that, I'll say I, but really with with lots of others. I mean, it's a very collaborative organization. Nothing happens when one person wants it in that organization when I got there. And that's good and bad because our CEO at the time said, by the way, yes, you have all my support. CEO support is an ingredient and it absolutely is. But what I learned at Gore, and it's a positive, is it didn't matter. We really needed to generate buy-in across the board, mm-hmm. person by person almost. Sometimes it felt that way. But the way we did that, I did that, was to come up with a frame that felt meaningful. So, The first one, I'm sort of visualizing a slide. Isn't that a crazy part of life where I'm like, where's that slide? But I know when we set out to define an approach to diversity that was true for us and not just what companies do, it was anchoring in a couple of things. One was the idea that, sure, affirmative action exists. We need to be compliant and we are. but that our work would focus on relationships and teams. This was mm. how do differences show up in day-to-day life? Mm. And that's through you know interactions with each other and our relationships and then how we work together, certainly in service of whatever the business need is. But that really helped Deb for me to get buy-in because it wasn't some abstract social issue or sometimes political issue. One of my favorite moments was after doing a workshop that we had created to try to ground ourselves in what would our definition of diversity be at Gore, a person, a white male said to me, that was good. I can't tell which side you're on. And I thought, ah, great. And I think what I said was, that's good. I'm not on a side, right? In this conversation, this is about (laughs) us, our culture. But I did actually note that. That was probably 14 years ago. So I said, that's good. Because I'm not advocating. I have a, certainly, I, ha- I have a political, ideological worldview that isn't going to be surprising to you, but I really knew that I wouldn't succeed if in an environment where I was, which was, by the way, rural Maryland, Cecil County, Maryland, and with all the stereotypical beliefs I entered with, I did find that if I could frame this whole conversation as about ourselves, our associates and how we work together and some of us aren't experiencing this culture in the way we intend it it wasn't really that hard to sell it still took work but the buy-in could happen by having mm-hmm. a a reason that seemed meaningful
0: well the framing of how what differences show up is is it really makes it easier for white people right <laughs> instead of saying all right everybody so let's list I think you use the term systemic exclusion, which I really like a lot because people can feel that everyone's been excluded at some point, Definitely, whether it's, yeah. whether it's the mean girls in you know, middle school yep. or, or the, you know, the guys, uh, in football, I'm using very classic, um, stuff, but every, so light, everybody, so light, yeah, so. I know. Right. Hello. It's that's okay. that's, it's okay. And that we was are. exactly, that was exactly in my imagery too. I was kind of it going back good. to the 1950s. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. So, I I mean, I think that's, people feel exclusion and this, I don't know this, I'm going to go on a tangent for a second and then go back. But when you said that I wrote down systemic exclusion and I really like that it doesn't, uh, because I think it can actually bring people to the discussion a little easier, partially because it is something everybody has felt. I mean, right. And I'm not trying to make it easier for white people. I'm just trying right. to say, right, if we're, if we're actually going to try to make this, make these sh- paradigm shifts, as you put it, societally, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that term is an interesting one to use. Systemic racism, I think, and I can I, I know this to be true, can put people, I'm not, again, gosh, I'm just going to put this caveat in every time I say it. I'm not trying to make it easier for white people, particularly those who are resistant to acknowledge you know the the social construct of race. But if you've been privileged by racism and not a victim of it, I mm. wonder there's just a different association with that particular word. But for exclusion, that's a that everybody has felt that. I'm not sure why I went down that rabbit hole, no. but I'm, I, as we think about defining terms to bring people on board just to discuss, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and I loved the question of how do differences show up? How, how do they show up? And and from, you know, all the readings that you and Tanya and others have been sending to me, that that notion of just walking through your day and understanding that you're not followed in a store, right? Mm-hmm. You know, your kids, when when, at least for my kids, and I've said this before, you know, the talk about driving was about being safe and mm-hmm. it was more about an accident, not about you know, being arrested or, or killed. Um, it's never been about that. I've never had to think about that. It's, it, it's never in terms of higher education. It was, it was certainly the undergraduate, but of course it's going to be a graduate school as well. Right. So, and that was not even a barrier. It's, it's knowing that you not your ability, but your access to the act of negotiation is in your favor if it's white with white. Now, not necessarily male with female, but white with white versus someone of color. Like if, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, so all that stuff is just keyed up. So, and it is very difficult to hear that. It's just difficult. You're like, good Lord, I had no idea. You know, I and the, you want to make sure that those feelings are then positively put into actions to stop mm-hmm. the exclusion right to to end the racism so what i'm thinking about in terms of being I, I, and i really appreciate you lifting up this um you know person within the company who's like i couldn't tell what side so for you very very important but at the same time heartbreaking right that right. Right. after the workshop the guys <laughs> like what side are you i was like dude that is not the, that's exactly that, that is not what you were supposed to come away with in fact thanks, you clearly didn't listen, right? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Yet,
1: he, were... he didn't leave either. I, I, it's so interesting, Deb, because once I, I'm going to go off on a, a story about those early days with the white people who I came to understand, part of how I got to understand this community of white people was through the black people who had been living with them. And that's very telling because I know, you know, one of the critiques happening even in the past few months has been like black scholarship is where we should. And and I have tried. I'm not an academic, so I never have the good quotes at the ready. But it is true that the study of whiteness didn't start with Robin DiAngelo as much as I I think, you know, I am a huge fan girl of hers, Mm -hmm. fan person of hers. And, I mean, she would speak for herself, but she wouldn't claim that either. But the, I've seen some appropriately critical writing of um, black people. And I'm not thinking want to reference saying like, hold on, let's not glamorize Robin DiAngelo. Um, and I'm finding a lot of tension in that because what does that mean? Because if white people, if we white people, including myself, can connect to her in a way that lets us deepen our understanding and then take better action, then I'm okay with it a little bit, as long as it's not at the exclusion of black voices. And I think this is the exact tension that goes on. For me, certainly as a white diversity practitioner, which is you know, not totally rare, there's others, but it's less common. And I am always aware that for me at Gore, I think I was able to drive some things initially faster and further because I was being listened to differently. And that was hard. I was like, oh, I like that. But then I didn't want to exploit it, if you will.
0: Oh, I no, I get it. I mean, that would, that would, it was interesting. There was a article, I I know I sent it to Tanya this morning. I, I mm-hmm. should have sent it to you as well. And it brings up her work and then two other um, folks who um, are also in this. Oh, yes kind of crossroad. Maybe it was yesterday's paper, um, but right. Yes. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes, yes. And, um, how it is interesting how, um, and and we will figure this out in terms of a national conversation, Mm -hmm. but it is, you know, you can, you can see where the color of a, a diversity officer I think we've gotten so used to using that space in corporate America or higher education as the place the person of color needs to sit, yep. uh, versus the you know I keep talking about the humanness of this issue and and seeing people as humans, not disregarding race. It's not the it's not a colorblind kind of thing. It's just just like who is the most qualified for this, and that's it. That's mm-hmm. that's tricky, right? Yeah. Does right does study Trump. I'm sorry to use that word, but just study... Uh, sorry, yeah, I need a need new verb does uh, does academic study right so you read all of Kozel's work you read you know you, know, you read everybody's work right and you learn about the, the systemic uh, racism and exclusion in America and across the world and does that make you ready or do you have to have felt it or do you is it just acknowledging I mean this can get a little tricky yeah. in terms of the authentication of the person in the role yeah. and, the, yeah. and the last thing you want to do I, I well maybe not the last thing i wonder you almost want to have like it's not because people can't handle the work it's not a capacity issue it's just like a it's a a presence issue now i'm going to step all in it but you really Mm. kind of wonder if it needs to be a collection of people right not not necessarily a department but what would that look like a co-lead kind of thing Mm -hmm. not that you have black white right that's because that's just so easy but that when you look at that department you actually see the thing reflected so you have Um, I don't know. Was that a challenge for you to be white and talking about um, diversity and and inclusion and equity when, in fact, you are a person of privilege?
1: Yeah. Yes and no. At first, probably not as much, but that's more a testament to my own continuing to learn about the Mm -hmm. privilege. and, And, you know, in some ways, I was probably your I was a bit clueless. There's no fancy word for it. But I learned. So maybe I'll tell you about when I think my most pivotal learning was as a white person that allowed. And I wasn't doing diversity work other than my perpetual raising my hand to volunteer for things that sounded really interesting because I was just so fascinated by social justice, race, social justice. These were things I was just inherently interested in and lots of. I've examined a lot of where that comes from and I've shared a little bit with you. Happy to talk, but talk more, but the, was it hard for me as a white person? Um, Sometimes, but the way I learned was when I was working in, I was in my early twenties and the long and short of it was worked with mostly black people. And one day while eating lunch, like just your most benign thing, one of them, Lejeune, said, Jane, why do white people, you know, fill in the blank. The, the question was silly. Why do white people wear shorts in the winter? And we laughed. And I said, oh, we do. And, and this was very, very, like, transformative for me. It, and I wouldn't have labeled it that way at the time as a 24-year-old. Mm-hmm. I was like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that wait, what later became, ah, uh, I'm part of a racial identity group and I never had to know that. I just mm-hmm. literally didn't have to. And so privilege. Um, but more, the next step for me was going, there's a bunch of like stereotypes about my group. And that I went, oh, it helped me because it helped me see how it worked. Like, but wait, mm. I don't wear shorts in the winter. And it was more about white men, by the way. Um, mm. But all, all of that I think sparked this deeper curiosity for me personally about race in particular, but differences more broadly. And, and then another experience where I was doing the, I hate to talk about it, but like this white, this was later in grad school, a very high minded, you know, space where I was with other people and studying (laughs) and we were doing a, a community time. It was called. It's an excellent process for learning about group process and the facilitator's, It was actually a topic of, the topic of race came up in our community, 26 grad students. And um, there were a couple of white people, women, by the way, I'll I'll oversimplify, doing the dance of I'm so ashamed to be white. And I was far more advanced than that, you see. (laughs) And there were a couple of other white women who we were like, oh, they haven't done their work you know, kind of vibe, very <laughs> gross, but, um, and I, this is the most embarrassing part, I decided I had to tell the group, excuse me, you know, I don't attach to that white guilt, and I said something, and, and the facilitator masterfully said, and I do not remember his name, all blank, he was a black man, and he really, more generous than he needed to be, um, said, well, wow, that, so you're saying you don't want to be judged based on your group, white women. And you would like to be seen as yourself, an individual. And I was like, yeah, no, I stepped right into it. I went,
0: exactly.
1: (laughs) And I think he might've said, yeah, that'd be nice. And I'm like, got it. So this is, yeah, one of those moments when I went, oh, brother, you know, and I was already doing diversity work and I was, you know, better than average white. And then I remembered, no, no, you're not. You're not. So I think that actually might be what helps me as a white person doing diversity, inclusion, equity work is I had to go through every single thing that I'm asking others to. And it sucks because I felt very stupid and, uh, and, and other things, ashamed, embarrassed. But Hmm. the good news was I had that space that was safe to process that. And what do you call that? Bury that one. Yes,
0: right. <laughs> that seems like a, wow, what a defining moment for it you. Was, right. And really and was. instead of it, instead of you using it to push, push things away, you accepted your reaction. You accepted his reaction more yes. importantly. And yes. I think that's, boy, that's a, that's a lesson in humility. Um, and I guess I, f- I, I do believe, and I, I, I do believe so many people are, are trying so very hard and, just to, to try to understand and to know what to do. We've talked um, a bit about in prior conversations about, you know, some folks are looking for a to-do list and, you know, they, they, they saw the murder of Mr. Floyd and, and others, and they, they're not quite sure what to do. And, and so if we could just move from the corporate to um, a little bit more to kind of these personal reflections on, not carrying, not asking uh, people of color to carry the burden mm. of a white person trying to understand and learn. But but help us understand, besides that great story mm. <laughs> and the work you did at Gore, what talk to us about how you have acquired this um, prism as a lens to see the human in people. Thank you, Deb. Uh,
1: I think that is... Probably the core, just a attempt to be a you know a loving, kind human and seeing that in in everyone. But I didn't you know just erupt that way. I have a cop father and a nurse mother, as I mentioned. So there was this basic you know belief in the goodness of people, despite problems that I suppose I have tried to embody. So what I do now, sitting here, and um, is don't assume I know things. Mm. I I made a mistake last week. You know, here I am an alleged and I think a literal expert in a topic and was on a, in a conference on a call and I used the word minority and um, I don't always, I'm aware that that is a phrase that many people of color don't like. It's discussed. We can argue for and against it. I knew how I was using it, but um, this woman didn't know me and didn't know that. And so she asked, really, I was appreciative. I, I hope I'm answering your question, like what we yes. can do. I think mm-hmm. that what we can do is listen and be appreciative. If someone, like a person of color in particular, or it can go across any identity group, like anyone who's in the minority in yes. context and majority. So, um, yes. but what she did was, and I tried to imagine what that took for her to just decide not to let it go. And I just, mm-hmm said, thank you. I So mm. be gracious and appreciative and don't attempt to make yourself right and be a good white person. But later someone who was on the call said, oh, why didn't you tell her you do this for a living? And I go, who cares? You know well, that's not really the point. I used a word that hurt her. And like, I just, as much as I felt bad, I did feel bad. I don't want to sound insensitive. I just decided to say, got it. Thank you. And then we moved on and yeah, I may interact with her again. So that's one tangible thing to just be so open and receptive to the fact that you didn't intend, I didn't intend to hurt her or have a negative impact or cause her to feel the need in a group that she didn't know. And she was the only black woman to speak up. And I thought, good for her. She should. I'm happy. And I'm sure it's tiring. So I just tried to have a lot of empathy for that. So that's probably it. Being open, having empathy, you know, the thing that I go back to. So just accepting some generalizations about us as white women, as white people, even if they don't feel true, Mm. um, often conveyed as, hey, 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 I'm not a racist. I know Mm. you're reading this stuff too. But this idea of um, what I believe, I- Ibram Kendi, Dr. Kendi is a mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. well known. I think he and Robin D'Angelo actually work together. And what I know of Robin through her work with us at Gore is she is extremely deliberate about anchoring her scholarship to black scholarship and mm-hmm. her work. So I respect that about her. Um, and i try to do that too. But that phrase, I'm not a racist, does two things. Like, I would say, don't say that. If That's very prescriptive. But when you feel to say that, examine where that's coming from. To me, this is mm. an action to say, mm. Mm. and as you know, Dr. Kendi's frame would say, you're either racist or anti-racist. And if you say I'm not a racist, I, I'm not getting exactly right, but that's pretty much evidence that you are a racist in denial or still not sure of how it all works. So accepting something that individually might not feel real. So me being, if I was told I was a racist, I'd have to go, oh, I'm not, but yeah, I am. But I am working to be anti-racist. And part of that is allowing for these phrases to come through and not making it all about me. What I suggest to other white people who really earnestly want to be better at this is to examine whiteness. Don't only examine what it means to be a person of color in the context, but really um, examine being white and white identity. And, and that's some the program we developed um, at Gore. We very deliberately named it Building Racial Literacy. And it didn't mean go study um, African-American history. Study American history. Understand mm. the context of being white in this country. That And that did come from... Um, a workshop. I'm sure she has it in a book, but um, I don't recall, but Robin D'Angelo, the first workshop I ever attended with her, which by the way, our friend Tanya, um, I had heard of Robin, but she had seen her speak. And she was, Tanya was our consulting partner for this race project. And we ultimately invited Robin in and did a pilot of a workshop. And at that session, this phrase stuck with me the most hostile environments for people of color are, and black people in particular in this context are those where there is unexamined whiteness. And I spent like days going, yeah, but it's all unexamined who examines whiteness. Like that's, and, and I kind of got myself, yeah, that's the whole point. So if I yeah. can examine it, so that's it. I wanted to, you triggered me to remember that phrase. No,
0: I appreciate like, well, well, I appreciate that. Cause I think that it seems like it's, yeah, the, the, so the, the pressure then becomes more equal yes. to under, right. It's not just about, well, I can't understand what a person of color has gone through. I can maybe describe it, but I, I haven't felt it well, but, but there isn't, there is an experience that you also has, have felt that white people have felt. And yes. so what, what let's name that stuff as well. So here's a, here's a question. Do you believe that and I'm thinking kind of corporately, mm-hmm. right? Uh, well, corporately organizationally, I guess. Um, do you think white people are afraid they're in a space or in a particular position that they don't belong or wouldn't have achieved if they were another color? Um, no, I don't think they think about it.
1: I think if they pause, they might. Uh, but yeah. I have not experienced that. I, I've experienced the opposite, almost like, and this is written about, that when white people achieve, it's because of your... Personal efficacy and how good you are. And yet, people of color who get into advanced roles in organizations are often battling the, you know, oh, well, you got it because. So, but I I don't think most of us white people question that we get things because we deserve it and we've worked for it. I guess this is what I'd like to share. I think the reality of white people, white men in particular, I'm thinking about. The acknowledgement, like what you can do in a corporate environment is in, in moments make choices that might seem to disadvantage white people. But it's okay because in the aggregate, we're actually attempting to change the system. So the very simple example, and it, this hit me if you can't tell, like these moments with good people who have been willing to be so honest with me have really impacted my um, mm. just me and how I approach things. But uh, a white man said to me years and years ago, all right, Jane, I got to keep it real in some way that um, if I'm really honest, it isn't good for me. If I choose, in this case, a woman, it was a hiring case study. Like If all things being equal is sometimes the False frame. All things are never equal in interviewing, right? Or in selection. But the idea was, and what companies should do, in my opinion, is just force this to happen more. If all things being equal is the scenario, meaning either the man or the woman, the white person or the black person, if it's down to two candidates, if either could do the job, choose the person of color, choose the woman in service of the broader goal that the company says they want, which is more diversity and representation of people of color and women in leadership. But in this context, what he said to me was, yeah, but isn't that unfair to the white guy? And I said, "Um, I don't know, but I do know that in that particular case, he won't get this particular job but he'll probably be fine. We have no data that says white men are not growing in the same rate they've always grown and advancing and being hired and leaving. There is no data to report that, it doesn't exist. Um, But we do know the opposite is true, that women and people of color are not growing at the rate we would expect if everything was um, okay. I would say kosher, but that wouldn't be the right word. so it's this honesty with self I guess Deb that hit me your question reminded me of that experience where he was willing to say well that's hard cuz that's his livelihood you know that's this person's yeah yeah and I was like it's our livelihood too women or people of color that that were in the same boat so kind of recognizing that you are actually On a home team sometimes and looking out for each other in a way that you might not even realize. But to extend that same solidarity, I guess, or advocacy to those who do not look like you. That's the skill that I I think we need to figure out how to do. That was,
0: yeah, so beautifully put it. It, it reminds me his his reaction, which I can you know I certainly understand I his react yeah. his reaction. I know you do too. His reaction was goes back to the image we started the conversation with of the pie, right? Yes, um, you're and right. then and then you have just helped us move. I'm using the tide as an image. I don't know why, but you're you are, you're use you're helping us reframe those opportunities to say, but he will inevitably have another chance. Yes. because the system, the system will allow that to happen. And certainly he could be angry. He may even leave the company. He doesn't, you know, cause he's lost too. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really do, this is the final tension. And as we wrap, let's, let's mm-hmm. think about this. So the the That's tension, from I think, and long haul thing, isn't it? The it long, is, it, oh, it is. And yeah. it's, it's Great no, 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 you're, you're there. It's, it's the patients, but it's also this individual versus greater Mm. good. And I think it's, I think it's very difficult for us. Um, I think it's very difficult for us. So either in a story or in some advice, when Mm -hmm. we're thinking about patients and long haul, and we're thinking about the greater good and the individual, can you, can you kind of help us think about how to, how to move forward from this conversation, particularly if you're a business owner or within a leadership in a corporation?
1: Yes, I think the, um, what came to mind was pausing before acting, just pause a little bit to understand your own identity and how whiteness has operated in your life. So I'm answering as if it's for Mm -hmm. white people. I realize there are people of color who Mm -hmm. um, are business owners, but I'm speaking to white people to before an action to, to reconnect to what it means to be white in your life. And, and I think that has um, well, that has worked for me a lot. And I still do it, to tell you the truth, even though I've done it forced and I forced others to sort of get all the way back, as far as you can remember, to moments in your own life when you noticed identity in others, or when you felt different. And the reason I think that's still a, that's a classic diversity training exercise that many people have likely done, but the value of it is to remember the context matter somehow, to not kind of crystallizing that, but to not focus so much on what you have to do right now. So putting up a sign that says Black Lives Matter, excellent. What, why? Like, why does it need to be said and then understanding it in your own context? Because I think that's a risk that I'm seeing a lot lately, that it's easy to say these things, Deb, it's, and, and they're earnest, but to be able to know what to do the next time a Black person challenges me about use of the word minority that required me to have a a sense of confidence that i do not have to defend myself i can handle being called out by a black woman and it's okay i'll survive it's hardly comparable to some of the pain that goes on every single day so a long haul requires patience with myself too and Mm. patience to know like i I literally do not solve anything by just pronouncing things and then not applying them in my own day-to-day life.
0: I am grateful to Jane as she now walks alongside me in this journey to become an anti-racist. Her call to do this work with an urgent patience is helpful as I grow concerned that once photos of protests fade from the front page, politicians and celebrities find another cause the ground gained will be lost so I leave us as we end this episode of 3 a.m. what's keeping you up at night a production of the McFarland group with a quote from a civil rights icon we have just lost congressman john lewis an advocate for good trouble his words and our podcast today take a long hard look down the road you will have to travel once you have made a commitment to work for change. Know that this transformation will not happen right away. Change often takes time. It rarely happens all at once. In the movement, we didn't know how history would play itself out. When we were getting arrested and waiting in jail or standing in unmovable lines on the courthouse steps, we didn't know what would happen, but we knew it had to happen. Thank you for listening. Please share this conversation with others. Until next time.